the most important thing that nonprofits don't realize is that fundraising has nothing to do with uh, anything but are you aligned with the organization that you are being approached by? If you are not, it's not a good time to ask. You could have a billion and a half dollars, but if you're not aligned, you don't really care about an organization, it doesn't matter. So uh, it's working on just trying to scale down what they're doing and what they're asking for, telling a better story by being curious, and then it's just finding out who's aligned and then working a relationship that way. Welcome to the Impact Roadmap, a podcast designed to give you the practical, concrete steps to grow your nonprofit or future forward business in a sustainable way. I'm your host, Joey Goon. Let's get into the episode. Hey, friends, welcome to the Impact Roadmap podcast. I am your host, Joey Goon. In season one, we got curious. Um, we had honest, meaningful conversations with anyone making an impact on the world. That meant community organizers, professional fundraisers, small business owners, and uh, and so many others. And so we got to hear a lot of stories from a really diverse array of perspectives. And it was incredible uh, and profoundly eye-opening, quite frankly. And so this season, we are digging deeper and focusing on stories um, that really have to do with something that's more true to the essence of our brand and what we offer the world, which is storytelling and impactful live events and building relationships through your stories and through your events. And so we wanna give you a peek behind the curtain, really an exclusive pass into the minds of those orchestrating the coolest events on the planet. Why do they exist? What sets them apart? How do they inspire meaningful engagement and captivate their audiences? How do they leverage storytelling and community to build businesses, which is what we're gonna talk about today with Patrick. And so this season on the Impact Roadmap, it's storytellers and event professionals that are making an impact. Buckle up, baby. Here we go. So today I have um, my dear friend Patrick Kirby joining me. Uh, Patrick is the founder of Do Good Better Consulting, the author of Amazon's bestseller, Fundraise Awesomer, which is a practical guide to staying sane while doing good. He is the host of the official Do Good Better podcast that I was honored to be interviewed on just a few weeks ago. Uh, a believer that we've always done it this way is the most dangerous phrase in the English language, touche. Uh, Patrick has spent nearly two decades working as a fundraiser in the nonprofit industry for organizations of all shapes and sizes, most notably as the Senior Director of Development of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation in Minneapolis and the Chief Development Officer at Ann Carlson Center, which is based in North Dakota. You earned your BA um, in politics. No way. We got to talk about that at De uh, Dubuque, Iowa. At uh, Is that Loris College, Patrick? Indeed it is. Heck yeah. All right. Didn't butcher it. And you are hopelessly addicted to super nerdy sci-fi fantasy novels and old school Nintendo games. We could uh, talk a little bit about Zelda and Super Mario. Uh, Super Mario probably being the more topical of the two, given the movie that was just released a couple weeks ago. Patrick, you married out of your league to your wife, Shannon. You have three ridiculously adorable children named Spencer, Preston, and Willow, a puppy named Calvin, and you live in Fargo, North Dakota. What did I miss? Because that bio was really short. That was No, that was great. I, I realize it's very short, but it's also way more, uh, it's way less uh awkward to sit through that than it is a like an elongated bio uh because i don't because again i'm a i don't like to brag about stuff because i'm from the midwest and so that's just awkward in nature so you nailed it you nailed it and by the way thank you for having me on uh we had such a blast uh chatting the last time when you were on my podcast that i've been looking for this has been on my radar for weeks and so i can't wait 
gonna be awesome. Tell us a little bit more about your your background um, and and give people sort of the cliff notes on your business. Like, what do you sell? What are you offering? Um, and and if you want to go a little bit deeper too into how did you get into this work, that'd be super helpful. Yeah. So uh, I tell people uh, if I'm bumping into them at the bar or coffee shop, and they're like, "What do you do?" And I go, "Well, I help nonprofits suck less at fundraising." And then they're like, "What?" Like, who says that as their tagline? And I say, well, most of us who have been in the nonprofit industry are accidental fundraisers, right? We went to school for something completely different. We ended up in the nonprofit realm. Somebody moved out of some sort of chair and then, or we have to raise money. And then the person who is either the most personable or the one who wrote the best or who just is stuck with the role has to raise money. So most of us in the nonprofit industry just got into it ass backwards. And so uh, I help those who have no idea what they're doing to try to figure it out because there's a list of 10,000 things you could do. You should only do a certain amount of things, tell better stories, build better relationships, ask for money specifically. And that's kind of what I do to help. So originally, uh, my first job out of college was working for my old high school. Uh, which is a private Catholic college or high school. And uh, they asked me to be the alumni guy. I'm like, they're your alumni. And you seem to know how to talk to people. Would you like to be an events person and an alumni guy? I go, yeah, sure. I have no other prospects. Because again, I was a politics major and nobody tells you that when you go to college, that's not like, there's no job waiting for you when you're a politics major. So I did that for a number of years. And then I got recruited out to work at the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation onto the Ann Carlson Center. And then that's kind of what I do now, uh, which is great. So I, but I, I realized that when I was kind of in my chief development officer role, my, my last, uh, you know, big boy job was that I loved the idea of helping these smaller and medium sized nonprofits get their crap together. And I loved, I loved mentoring. I loved teaching it. Um, and I had this vibe that I'm like, if I put this like a, a business plan together, I think this actually might be a thing. There wasn't anyone doing what I was doing. There wasn't anybody on the radar. I mean, people were doing capital campaigns, but nobody was like building capacity for small nonprofits. And either uh, somebody tried it and failed miserably because there's no money in it, or nobody was crazy enough to do it. And it happened to be the latter and poof, for almost seven years, I've been doing this and it's been uh, remarkably fantastic and fun the entire time. What do I, 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 it's so interesting. You mentioned helping nonprofits suck less at raising money or fundraising. What would you say, are there like one, two or three like glaring issues that nonprofits suck at that like, what can they, there has to be something, yeah. uh, you know, like a, a commonality that you notice in all of these nonprofit organizations when you first, uh, you first, you know, step into the space. Mm -hmm. um, what is staring back at you as the biggest problem or opportunity for evolution or enhancement? Yeah. Well, I think most people do too much. So simplifying and getting niche with what you're asking for and what you're doing is number one. So um, I used to joke at uh, a previous job when people would ask me like, well, what is the, what does this organization do? And I was like, well, let me tell you what we don't do. It's a shorter list. And it was just an exhaustive thing and thing and thing and thing. Right. So a lot of nonprofits who who do a lot of things or have a lot of programs think that they have to tell oh, every great. single person, every single story about everything that they do. And they're 49 minutes into a story and they haven't even gotten to like asking the other person who is curious enough to ask about you a single question. So 
simplifying your message and simplifying what you're asking for and simplifying your story uh, is the easiest and best route to raising more money, which launches right into how do you tell a better story, which is not necessarily saying things, but asking questions to the person who you are meeting with, right? Yeah. If there's if there's one thing that drives me nuts is that the the I'll bump into a person who has a nonprofit who only wants to sell me on their nonprofit, and they just want to tell me about how awesome they are and about what great things they do and about what world changing things are. They're they're probably right. They're doing that, but they have no idea whether I give a rat's behind about what they're doing because they've they've failed to ask me a single question of like, hey, are you into this? And I could say no, and it'd save them a lot of time and energy. Or I am, but I'm only interested in this. And so they can save a lot of time, energy, and effort just scaling down what their stories are to what I want. And if there's the, the, the most important thing that nonprofits don't realize is that fundraising has nothing to do with uh, anything but are you aligned with the organization that you are being approached by. If you are not, it's not a good time to ask. You could have a billion and a half dollars, but if you're not aligned, you don't really care about an organization, it doesn't matter. So uh, it's working on just trying to scale down what they're doing and what they're asking for, telling a better story by being curious, and then it's just finding out who's aligned and then working a relationship that way. I, um... I think it's so brilliant. It reminds me of, I've got um, a project manager at Utopia who's currently interviewing for a, an open position at Utopia. Mm. And um, there were, you know, 10, 12, 15 people in the first round pipeline that we decided to let through. And, you know, um, we're like, wow, these people are super exciting. Let's see how charismatic they are, how personable, how relatable, so on and so forth, right? He gets through the interview and I immediately poo-pooed 13 out of the 15 people. And he's like, well, what were your characteristics for making that evaluation? And I said, well, most of them say they're curious, but they don't ask questions. And so the ones that I'm most interested in continuing the conversations with are the ones that open up and they're like, hold on, before we do anything, what are you looking for in a candidate? why did you choose me? Why are you interviewing me today? The ones that said that are the ones that got through to round two and now ultimately going to get through to round three and probably get an offer from Utopia. And I think that that is, that should be ubiquitous, right? Like that should exist everywhere. That curiosity, that capacity for like genuine curiosity, care and compassion instead of let me tell you all of the hard skills and what qualifies me to do da 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 da. Or let me tell you about all the awesome things about our nonprofit. Instead, it's like, hey, Patrick, mm -hmm. tell me about your life. Yeah. Where yeah. have you been? Oh my God. Like they wouldn't even know that you had a background at, you know, as a, a nonprofit executive. No. And open up, open up by asking those questions. That's it's brilliant. I love it. Well, th and that's that's how you build any relationship, right? So you so let's just say again it dated it a while but let's just assume that that's a that's a thing you're going to do you don't go to a coffee shop you meet somebody new for the first time and go let me tell you all the things that i'm awesome at that's not how any of that works uh and doing so it all why, wrong yeah yeah so why are you why are we treating donors or treating pros, uh pr prospective donors or partners or anything else other than just another human being trying to get to know another human being to see even if you would matter together or work together well um, and I think that's part of it too, where one of the most intriguing questions you can ask a donor is why do you even give in the first place? Not to us, 
not to this, but why do you even give? What's what's the meaning behind you? Do you do you feel an obligation to do it? Uh, have you just been grown up in a in a household that values philanthropy? You learn so much more about a person from getting a background on why they give uh, than you do. When's the last time you gave me money? Like that's not going to tell you anything. But if you can learn a little bit about the dynamics of what makes them tick or what they're curious about or what they're interested in, that's going to be able to have you align whatever programs or products or services or whatever you're doing way more than you just trying to pitch them on why you think that you're the best at doing whatever you're doing. Patrick, I want to I want to come back to our um, the conversation that we had before we hit record. And it was a book I'm reading by Alex Hormozzi called One Hundred Million Dollar Leads. Love it. So in this book, he breaks down the four different types of ways to create leads for any business. Mm-hmm. And so there are really four ways that you can tell anyone about anything. And it comes from two different types of audiences and two different types of communication. Hmm. So the two different types of audiences are people who know you, warm mm-hmm. audiences, people who don't know you, mm-hmm. other people's audiences or strangers. So the warm audiences have given you permission to contact them. So that's people in your phone book, friends, family members, followers, current past customers, contacts. They need to know you to be warm, but you don't necessarily need to know them. Yeah, anyway, it's not uh, bilateral, it's unilateral. Yep. And then there's cold people who don't know you, people who have not yet given you permission to contact them. This is other people's audiences or lists or eyeballs or ears that belong to platforms like people on Facebook where you may be using Facebook or LinkedIn as a proxy to gain their attention. So those are the two different types of audiences. And then you have two different types of communication. Mm-hmm. And understanding this was a huge breakthrough for me because once you understand that there's only four ways of letting people know about your stuff, then like you said, we're not trying to figure out all these, like we're not overcomplicating it. We're realizing there's only four things that we should be doing to advertise and get people to care about our businesses, whatever they are, nonprofit or for profit. And so again, two different audiences and then two different types of communication. So the communication is one-to-one, which is private. So this is a phone call, an email, a text, a voicemail, a direct mail, or a message, or one-to-many, which is billboard, podcasts, content, and events. So if you imagine the four quadrants, so you've got a square, four quadrants, Mm -hmm. the top row is one to one. Mm -hmm. So if you, in the top left quadrant is people who know you, Um, top left quadrant is people who know you, and one to one, private. Mm -hmm. Top right quadrant is people who don't know you, one-to-one private. Bottom left quadrant is people who know you, one-to-many. Bottom right is people who don't know you, one-to-many. So Utopia Experience, my company, for example, when we sell a service, we're operating in the one-to-many people who know you quadrant because we're helping our clients get people in the room who know them or know of them. But for me personally to grow and advertise Utopia and our company, I'm operating in the one to many people who don't know me quadrant, Mm -hmm. which is I'm going into other people's rooms or stages and hopefully trying to convert people to warm leads. So I'm curious, Mm -hmm. 
which is the way that you have grown your business and which is the way that you recommend that your clients grow their businesses? What are so, they not doing enough of? Yeah. Oh God, this is such a great question, by the way. Um, and a great phrasing on, I, I love the, I love that you've given this for both nonprofits and for-profits just to kind of noodle around. Right. So I got a couple of, I got a couple of different examples, right? So if I'm trying to sell a client on like a retainer client, right? So typically I work with uh, one organization, I'll work with an organization and we'll meet so many times a month or whatever, the duration of it. And then I'll just carve out one-on-one -on -one time with them, whether it's the development director, the CEO, whatever, the board chair, whatever that is. Um, my sales pitch is usually with a board chair or an executive, I'll do one-on-one. -on -one. That's my pitch. I'll sell you on how I'm going to help you do that. My audience that I chase after that I know are potential like hard sells are the ones who know me that I can do one to many. So they subscribe to my podcast. They subscribe to my newsletter. They uh, voluntarily show up at a, at a webinar or whatever. Like I know that I can give you a really good inkling of my personality on, on, on what I do and you schedule a call with me. I'm 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 pretty sure that within two or three minutes, I'm going to diagnose how I can help you raise more money, feel better about yourself, etc. Right? Those are the things. Ironically, um, I get leads from my warm one-to-many's who have one-to-one -one conversations with people I have no idea who they are. So my leads will come in from random, like, I saw a guy who just would match your personality and here's his contact information. I've never really used him, but I like what he does in this podcast. And they will reach out to me and I'll probably have a pretty good conversation with them about whether I can help them or not, et cetera. So it's, it's this weird, like almost alternate reality of this cube in which people who know what I do and, and, and really like the, the methodology, the enthusiasm, the cheerleading, the good practical advice that I'll give them and the proof of concept that I can help them raise money if they, you know, sort of follow a template and sort of have these benchmarks, will go out and have one-on-ones and my name will get brought up and then they will bring me to the table and say, hey, I want to introduce you to so-and-so because they are right for the picking or you should reach out to them as a way. It's this very weird dynamic. And I think um, my particular skill sets that require a little bit of blood, sweat, and tears on regularly scheduled meetings and benchmarks and accountability almost require that third-party endorsement than it is my first-party solicitation from a larger group. Because where I think people's value that they trust others who trust other people. It's the same way that we go on Amazon and we buy a broom. And like you think that this broom is going to be awesome, but you're going to trust Steve's review online before you buy it. You're like, ah, but Steve says it's okay. You give him five stars, so I'll put it in my cart, right? Very similar in the business model that I have. Now, that being said, when I'm talking to clients for nonprofits, it's very, it's very similar. The one-on-one -on -one quadrant in that upper left, mm -hmm. upper left, right? That is for your major donors, the ones who love you more than anything else, who open up your correspondence, who are very active, very engaged, your one-on-one -on -one time spent. Because we have, a again, 10,000 things to do. Where do we spend our time? 
our major donors, the biggest, highest capacity individuals are that one-on-one conversations because you only have so much time to do one-on-one. Yep. The rest of the time, spend with those who are inkling with you who may not be your your biggest, bestest fans but are interested in what you're doing. That's your one-to-many things. Mm-hmm. And I almost suggest that nonprofits spend the least amount of time with the hold, I don't know who you are, one-to-many right? Because, because you don't have the time to deal with it other than you going on to something like a podcast or a radio interview, et cetera, to sell the idea of what you're trying to do and accomplish. Because nonprofits are so pressed for time and there's so few bodies doing the work, where can you do the best good is those that know you or the ones who love you and then cultivating that. And then I guarantee you, I gar- I guarantee it, I don't, not a monetary amount, but I guarantee you that those people that love you the most who have one-on-one time are going to talk about you nicely to people you have no idea who they are, and they're going to introduce you, and then they can become your super fans as well. Yeah, man. Like, you hit the nail on the head. I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm resonating. I think if you stay in the people who know you column and double down on the one-to-ones, which are your main donors with capacity, and double down on either posting free content, getting on podcasts, yeah. resharing your event content, sharing testimonials from donors or recipients, the one-to-many people who know you content, and the one-to-one private people who know you, um, I'm sorry, the one-to-one people who know you and the one-to-many people who know you. The the Um, biggest issue that nonprofits have right now is donor retention. It's an, it it is awful, right? So we just, we just had, you know, and a lot of the the bellwethers that you see are like a Giving Tuesday, for example, right? mm -hmm. So we just had Giving Tuesday uh, when we recorded this podcast and globally it was flat, didn't raise more money than it raised the year prior to, right? First time that that's happened in a very long time. The more troubling figure is that there were 10 to 12% less donors getting us to that number. Every nonprofit organization that I know is bleeding donors. Organizations are bleeding donors. And what nonprofits are really concerned about and they're putting a lot of effort into is I need to go tell my story to people who have no idea who the hell they are. And they're wasting a lot of time and energy and effort and people who are just not interested in anything they're doing while ignoring getting the ones that know you and like you and engage with you back. Because if you're sitting on a 50% donor attrition rate, now you're spending 50% of your time trying to get new people when you could have spent a lot more time getting the people to come back and celebrating them and appreciating them and customizing content for them so that they stick with you so you don't have to worry about getting so many more. And I think that's where the big mistake comes in with a lot of people who, and this goes this goes down to board of directors who are so um, chaotically trying to figure out how they make budget that they're so desperate for money coming in. They're like, go, 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 go get new people, new people, new people, rather than paying attention. And like you said, doubling down on those that love you the most and paying attention to those on how you grow that relationship and have them be your cheerleaders to go get new people. So what the the donor attrition next after? Are you familiar with their group? Oh yeah, yep, love them. Great Nathan, yeah. Nathan was just recently. Um, he was. I don't. I, I think I, we saw him. At, I saw him at Cause Camp. Um, but I, I think this this was more recent where he cited a statistic like it was sixty plus percent of donors give once and never give again. Is that because people are sort of just becoming numb to 
the asks and they're they're caring less because they're like, oh my God, I open my emails and I see 4,000 nonprofits asking me for the same thing and they're just like done with it. Yeah. Like, well, what, well, there's what is a the problem and how do we, <laughs> okay, this is a, this is, uh, this is perhaps, um, uh, I don't know if nebulous is the right word. It's a great word. It's a great word because there's a million different universes you can go into this thing. I'll give you I'll give you a couple of examples on why this is a problem and, and what the problem is, right? So number one, people people want to give. That's a problem because they everybody wants to make the world a better place or figure out how to make themselves feel good. It feels good to give. Everyone also has the attention span of gnats. And that might be offensive to gnats, right? Because it's just there's so much thing. There are thousands of people who are competing for our dollars and our attention every single day. You're you're vying against uh, pop companies, soda pop companies, or fast food chains, or your school, or a church, or other organizations. You're competing against everything. So we want to give. We're inundated with uh, with advertisements from everybody, and uh, we don't pay attention very much. So when there's a cause, when there's an issue that we feel really uh, in the moment uh, good about that I want to help, I'm going to give you 25 bucks. Those organizations are so inundated with money or they don't have the manpower or woman power, or person power to, to respond back and engage them that that's the last time you ever hear from an organization. And what, you're going to go give to an organization that doesn't care about your gift? No. So you're going to fall off. That happens to most donors. So that's a problem, number one. Number two, our attentions go to somewhere else. There's another urgent need more than what I gave to last time. Or I've already given, right? Mentally, I've already given. I've already tried to solve that problem. The problem is still there. I'm going to move on to something else that's a problem, right? And so it's it's this it's this whole bunch of, of things that happen. So if you're an organization and you get new donors in, it is so important to have some sort of game plan on how to onboard them, how to make them feel as if their gift did something well. And, and again, that is a lot of work. And a lot of nonprofits don't have the, the people power to do the follow-up and do the, the, the secondary pieces over and over again. <sighs> it's, it's a litany of it. So when I talk about a donor attrition for your nonprofits is, is, is concentrating on keeping the donors that you have is the is the biggest best return of investment that you can make because it's a heck of a lot more expensive to go get those donors back and it's way more convenient to keep them if you can have this communication plan if you can have an impact plan if you can just talk to them without asking them for money every single time you connect with them that's a good part of your plan uh, and then just being thoughtful and purposeful and meaningful with the conversations that you engage with as it relates to events, Patrick, how do you feel like maybe we're tracking the wrong metrics? Because a moment ago you brought up, you know, the board being pressured by budget and tracking KPIs and overall financial objectives. Like we we feel like maybe we're looking at the wrong things because you had mentioned earlier the goal is to love on donors and by loving on them and caring about them and building empathy, you have many, many more people that you can have those to build into that top left quadrant, right? Yeah. we talked about earlier so as it relates to events and i find this interesting because it's directly you know ties back to our company are we tracking the wrong metrics should we mm -hmm. instead of like looking at how our our event either failed or succeeded 
based on whether or not we hit our fundraising goal, should we instead maybe shift our focus or evolve our metrics to say, how many people did we potentially build long-term capacity with? Mm -hmm. How many new eyes now know about us? And we could have those the possibility of getting across the table from, from them and building a relationship. Yeah. Like, Can we unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. So I like to classify these as two things. One, figuring out why on earth you're having an event, which I think, and I, I, I know you know this, when you walk into a new client who's never even considered the question before, and I know you're curious, and I'm like, why are you having this event in the first place? And they've never why been asked. a million dollars. Oh, oh, okay, great. So, so there's no purpose to it. So they're just throwing parties to throw parties. So I think the question is, is like, why are you having an event in the first place? Then is it to fundraise or is it to friend raise? So to, so to answer your question, I think reimagining the, the, um, the, the metrics is, are you trying to get new eyeballs to, to sell what an amazing organization that you have rather than just getting people in a room and then trying to get money out of them when they don't know who you are. So if you're, if your purpose of the event is to tell more people about the amazing things that you do and the amazing impact you make, maybe you want to build a friend raiser and a friend raiser is not going to make as much money as a fundraiser or I've already got enough friends. I want to take care of my high capacity donors and I'm going to build an event and I'm going to cure, curate an event specifically for my high quadrant, right? One-on-one -on -one awesome donors who love me. So I'm going to have a fundraiser that's exclusively for them. And even if I don't have 700 people in the room, I've got 120 of the right people in the room and I can curate and create an event around what they want because they know me. I don't have to start from scratch and go, here's what we do 101. You can have a graduate course level event with what impact and what you're going to do next, et cetera, with a smaller amount of people and probably raise more money. And I'll give you an example real time of a client that just did this a week ago. Um, they had an event that typically over the years has had three to 400 people show up. They didn't track a lot. They just asked people to show up. They gave away tickets and they raised a moderate amount of money. Okay. This year, by happenstance or just by sheer uh, luck or unfortunate things, there was a lot of different other events going on that day, school plays and school athletics, et cetera. So they had half of the amount of people who showed up, right? Now you think on the metric side, you're going to raise half as much money because half of the people who didn't show up, right? They got the right people in the room. The people who loved that organization showed up. They moved their schedules around and they made more money than they made with more people because they had fewer people bumping shoulder to shoulder. There was more space. They felt comfortable. They had an agenda. They had stories. They had impact uh, phrasing. They had people who were almost like table captains coming around and making sure that people were having a really good time. They were purposeful with the half group than they were scrambling to make room for the full group, right? So you're 100% right, Joey. This is something that I think we really need to really talk about is if you are an event planner, if you're an organization, why on earth are you having it? And you can curate two separate events for two separate different uh, needs at your organization. And they're going to turn out way better that way because you can concentrate 
on having a purposeful mission, purposeful agenda, purposeful uh, soundtrack or lighting or food that's geared towards the people that you know are going to show up. It's good to be 100% right 3% of the time. Exactly. Yes. It, feels, it feels really good. I'm yeah. aligned with that. I just learned that, you know, like having a company, having a wife and a part, a life partner. Yeah. Yep. 3% of the time. I'm 100% right. Yep. And that's fine. So, Patrick, there are different types of fundraising events. There's galas, auctions, charity, you know, 5Ks. Um, you've got golf tournaments. You have wine, wine and whiskey taste. I mean, there's so many different types of events. Do you feel like there's a specific type of event that that is more conducive to, you know, fundraising and one that is perhaps a better platform for fundraising? Yeah, um, I think you can make a fundraiser out of anything. Um, I would say golf tournaments are probably better fundraisers than fundraisers. The ROI and the expense of, of all things golf is kind of complicated to do unless you have like, like you're in the big golfing thing, you get a lot of sponsorships. That's a very difficult thing to raise a lot of money on if you're just starting out too, right? It's just very complicated. It's hard to raise you know, a, a million dollars having $100 hole sponsors. It's just hard to do, right? Um, I think more intimate events are ones that you could raise a significant amount of money with, with the right people in the room. But I think more importantly, whatever type of event you do, it's who you're getting in the room that's way more important, and then who's helping you get people in the room. If you can find champions, let's just say like, hey, I know that uh, that my friend Joey knows a handful of people that I know would really love my organization. And Joey loves my organization, but I've never asked him to go to the mats for me and get his close group of people. They probably don't want to showcase all of their money. They probably don't want to showcase, um, uh, you know, or be in an event. They're, they're not comfortable. They really don't know anything about me. But if Joey asks his 10 couple friends who, are, who have the capacity to give to a small intimate gathering where he is very upfront and says, hey, this is a fundraiser. This is a group I'm associated with. I love them dearly. I love you dearly. And I, because I love you and because I love them, I think you're going to get along with them. I'd love to let you know that this is a thing. Here's the goal we're going to raise. I, I'm going to invite you, blah, blah, blah. And you organize it like that. You're going to raise a bunch of money. Um, you could also do that with a bowling event, for God's sakes. You can do that with anything as long as it's purposeful and meaningful and you have other people help you curate the actual event itself. So I think any event can be a fundraiser. Any event can be a fundraiser as long as you are purposeful and transparent and enthusiastic about whatever route you go. Beautiful. I think, I think we can get creative enough to make that happen. That's how I, that's how I imagine it. In, in fact, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, caterers, et cetera, who just have that menu. This is one of my favorite things in the entire world to do is go to a, a caterer, for example, and go, all right, I know you've got the catering menu. What have you always wanted to do that nobody's ever given you permission to do that would be really fun for this particular event? You want to see a chef's eyes pop out of their skull at the opportunity to create something from whole cloth that they've always wanted to do, but they're always limited by doing dry chicken or tilapia fillets. Like give them the permission to curate an, an, an actual menu that they want. Oh man, you want to make them involved? Great. That's how you do it. And that's how you make things a little bit special. And this is what I, what I love most about your brain, Joey, too, and your whole crew is that not only do you think about messaging, but you allow the space for clients 
and I mean this, to think differently about how they can create an atmosphere that's unique and different and interesting than anything else. Like that permission to a nonprofit organization or a business to let them know that they can do something that's radically different and no one's gonna make it's not no one's gonna tell them they're mad at you for it. That's that's a superpower right there. That's why I love you as well, Patrick. And that's why these conversations are so organic and so natural, is because you sell through your charisma, your mm -hmm. energy. It's just naturally infectious. And um I, I've spoken to a lot of you know different consultants over the years. Um I would I would say, uh, and, and some other consultants out there might get mad at me for this, but you are the most innovative, creative, heart-centered consultant that I have ever had the pleasure and the privilege of building a relationship with. And for that, I'm super grateful. Well, I'm going to take that and I'm just going to, and that's what I'm going to tell myself. I'm going to replay this part back before I go to, when I'm having a bad day, I'm going to do that. I thank you very much. I, again, I, I think there's a lot of the background where I think um, if you have a background in theater, if you, and this is where you asked that, like, how on earth do you get into this, this role? How on earth do you get into fundraising? Um, a background in art or theater or, uh, or creative writing or et cetera, makes a wonderful fundraiser or event planner. And I, you've got like this, these paths that you think you have to carve out in, in college or in grad school or whatever. Um, no, I think a creative uh, theatrical person knows how to how a story goes, right, as an event, right? What are you experiencing when you walk in the door? This is what I loved about our podcast, by the way. I hope we link to that because uh, getting people to listen to how you explain the, how you walk into a room and what that looks like is brilliant. But like, what experience do you get from the minute you arrive to the minute you leave? And what's the story arc there, right? What do you, I mean, you've got these wonderful moments where you get to make a difference in somebody's life to make them say, I've never experienced an event like that. Well, that's the same thing that you do in theater, right? This big theatrical number at the top of the show right before the intermission. It makes you want to come back after intermission and see more. Or it's the last song that's a callback from the first song that gets you humming it in the car. You can think about that from an events standpoint. And what better way to leave a mark on somebody who's never experienced an event of yours or who had any idea what you do as a fundraiser or a, or an organization to have that sort of magical artistic theatrical experience that that's what makes this so fun and i think people think fundraising is boring and mundane and like hard and and it is but there are moments of just absolute joy and, and events is one of them and writing is one of them and just coffee meetings talking about being curious about those things getting to know people I mean, this, I could talk about this for 500 days because it's just, I'm obsessed with having people understand that it is not just hitting your budget. It is setting goals for a long period of time and building relationships. And you do that by thinking outside of the box and being creative. Uh, events is a major way to do it. Um, but just having that in, the inclination and that general curiosity and that, you know, that sense of wonder. Oh man, don't ever lose that if you're a fundraiser. Please, please don't. It's great. That's a long way of saying thank you. I appreciate you. <laughs> so many different ways and directions we can go with that, man. Um, do you do you know Tucker Wanamaker? No. Have you heard of him? Oh, I want to know. Uh, okay, I'll have to connect you. Okay. I was listening to one of his podcasts the other day, and he was sharing that nonprofits make profit. The profit just goes into you 
mm. and your staff and it goes into your business and so he kind of just flipped this you know he he changed the conversation in a way that gave people permission to not feel bad about paying themselves paying their staff paying the people around them and then supporting the the recipients and the programs i i think there is a shift joey in how donors perceive giving to organizations for overhead overhead used to be the dirtiest word in the english language right uh, when you come to donations it's like oh i don't want to give to uh salaries or benefits or whatever like well if you don't have people you don't have program how are you supposed to do work if you can't pay for a computer or turn the lights on yeah how are you supposed to run a program for kids with developmental disabilities in speech without a somebody who's highly educated who spent their entire life trying to figure out how to teach kids with developmental disabilities to speak how are you supposed to do the work unless you pay the person who spent a lifetime trying to achieve that a nonprofit is a tax status it's not a business plan and you can't be a nonprofit without paying people to do the awesome work that you're doing that yeah. drives me insane and every time i see or hear a donor talk about well what's the overhead cost i will push back a, a million times over because you're investing in the people to get a job done that the government won't or can't do these that's what nonprofit work is all about they're filling the holes they're saying that well this isn't as important i'll give you an example of this too so when i worked at the cystic fibrosis foundation back in the day right it was it's considered an orphan disease and for your audience that doesn't know what this is an orphan disease is a label by the federal government to say that there are so few people affected by this particular disease that the government doesn't deem it necessary or or worth it to fund they have arbitrarily decided that there are so few people who are going to die of this disease that eh, we can't really do anything about it right so it's an orphan disease so the government's not going to fund it so a group of parents who got sick and tired of watching their kids die got together and said screw this we'll raise our money ourselves they filled a hole where nobody was doing funding they raised money and paid the pharmaceutical companies to do research on their behalf until it got to a point where some sort of pharma company goes, oh, I could probably make a dollar on that. And without them, none of this curing potential would have happened. And you've now, when I started working there, the average life expectancy of somebody at CF was like 22 years old. Wow. And now these kids are gonna outlive me. And I got to watch it hand in fist. So you're telling me that nonprofits don't matter and the people who are doing all this research don't matter? No, thank you, sir. No, thank you. Wow, that's incredible. It's a, it, this is a passion project to a lot of people. And I understand about burnout because if you're that passionate and nobody's buying into the things that you're talking about because either you're, you're telling the wrong story to the wrong people and it can get absolutely exhausting. You take this amazing momentum and energy and, and authenticity and passion. And then people are just talking to the wrong people or they're having the wrong events or they're doing things that they could fix. And if you could just tweak that, and this is what kind of drives me on a, on a, on a regular basis is that if I can just tweak that and have them shown that if they can talk to the right people at the right time with the right alignment, that you're going to make a heck of a lot of money and you don't have to waste your time doing X, Y, and Z. They're going to keep that passion. They're going to keep that enthusiasm. And then the world becomes a little better place. 
And because you're going to burn people out way less, they're going to they're not going to leave the industry in which people are doing in droves. And that you keep the talent of people who are a really good fundraisers, really good storytellers and really good event planners, raising the money that people need to do good and make this world a better place. So let's let's bring more of this joy and optimism because it's freaking contagious. And I think it's going to serve the audience in spades. Any advice for those people that are listening right now that are just overwhelmed or feeling mm -hmm. discouraged because they're hitting roadblocks, as yep. you described? Yep. So number one, you're not alone. In fact, you're going to feel very alone. But everyone in your role right now is feeling the same exact way and nobody's talking about it. So find yourself somebody who is in a similar role. Have a beer or a coffee or something, a juice, and sit down and go, listen, everything kind of sucks and is tough. And I just need to vent to somebody right now because uh, I need to be relatable. Okay. So just find somebody who is in the trenches with you because you're going to feel like you're not alone anymore or find a group of people and just actively and proactively go out and participate in, in some sort of setting that again, is going to make you realize you're not alone. Number two, it's fixable, uh, but it's fixable finding the right people who love you more than anything else. So go to your champions and be very transparent of like, you know what? I need to find more people like you. I don't even want to ask them for money, but I need people in my life who believe in what we're doing as much as I do. And go to your board and tell them that you need to spend some time at board meetings celebrating your wins. And I know, again, here in flyover country in North Dakota, right? We are just stoic Germans who don't want to acknowledge that we do good stuff. And it drives people insane because they can't share wins. And so then the donors don't know that you're doing great things because you refuse to share what good things you're doing because you think it's bragging. It's not. It makes you feel good about it. it makes you feel good about doing the things that you're doing. It makes you feel uh, other people feel great about it too. So be a champion for your own success. That's another big tip that you need to do. Celebrate wins with your community. And then know that you're doing great work that nobody else is touching. You are the last best hope for a lot of kids, animals, communities, uh, environment, whatever whatever you've chosen as your sector, you're the last best hope for a lot of these groups. And your, your sanity and your joy and your enthusiasm is needed. And if I, you have to repeat that part of the whole podcast over and over again, is you are needed and you are wanted and you are desired to make the world a better place over and over again, put that mantra in the back of your head and find other people to feed you those lines as well, because we all need a boost every once in a while. It's depressing. Sometimes you don't get a call back from a donor for like weeks. And it's like, oh, it must be me. They must hate me. No, they don't. They're busy. They're busy. You're busy. Everybody's busy. But your insistence that you're doing great stuff and you're remembering that you're doing great stuff and reminding yourself of the impact you're making. That's what's going to keep you going. So don't stop doing it. I love you, Patrick. Joe, you're the best. You're best for giving a platform for this kind of stuff too. I mean, this is, I mean this, you know, a lot of us, you know, you, you could have a podcast right now, dude, seriously, that is just purely like buy my stuff, buy my stuff, buy my stuff. You're one of the few individuals who authentically want to be curious about other people so that it can pass along the good to everybody else. And that's a rarity and that's awesome. And I love it. So I appreciate you letting me be on your show so I can be a part of your awesomeness and we can double down our awesomeness together. And this is great. 
I'm grateful to have you here. No, Man, no. I, uh, this conversation and just sort of unpacking uh, trauma or uh, mm -hmm. inner conflict, it just really resonates with me. Yesterday I went to, I had the most amazing time. I'm a part of a group called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. Mm -hmm. And we hosted an event here in St. Louis with a, a lady named Kirsty Spragan. Hmm. And it was all about shadow work. And she hmm. leads medicine retreats in Mexico's cenotes, which are underground caves. She does like ayahuasca and psilocybin retreats. But this time, it was all about tapping into consciousness with no external aids. So we didn't do ayahuasca in St. Louis, unfortunately. That would be an um, interesting bit. I, that's. <laughs> but she dropped this gem of a quote, is that first the universe whispers, then it tells, then it yells, then it gives you a good old bitch slap. And it really hit home about how these interactions that we have, like we are so critical of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And those those small critical moments in mm -hmm. it that seem insignificant compounded over time result in layers of somatic trauma that live in our body. Mm -hmm. and And it just reminds me that, and this can manifest in various aspects of our life, physical ailments, uh, heart attacks, stress, pressure, cancer. There's so many different things. And so it just reminds us that we've got to give ourselves some effing grace. Mm -hmm. You got to love yourself. You got to wake up in the morning and be happy. And you should be because the work that you're doing is incredible. And Patrick, I think it really does come back to celebrating the little victories because when there's joy, fear cannot exist. When there's joy, there's. It doesn't mean that sadness. You can't experience joy in one moment and not, and then be depressed in the next. Like that's, it's just life, right? It's just the, uh, it's it's just how human emotions are. Like it's okay to experience joy, then experience sadness, right? But we have to do a better job of experiencing more joy and experiencing more optimism and recognizing those little wins and those victories along the way. Ah, oh, it's so cathartic. I know. So well, I think we forget that, you know, if you work at a small nonprofit, one of the things that I think you look at yourself and like, well, I'm not doing enough. You know, I'm not Bono. I'm not curing world hunger. You know, world hunger is never going to go away, but you can make little, you can, you can solve it in your neighborhood. You can solve it in your community. You can solve it in your state. You can solve it in your country. You can start building that out. And those small moments that you probably pass on of like, I said something nice to a donor or I, I sent a thank you note, or um, somebody complimented me, or we did this for a client. That small pebble that you think is so small has a ripple effect in a pond mm -hmm. that, that expands so far beyond where you can even see. And it, it's that butterfly effect, man. I, and I, in reminding yourself that these little wins stack up to a gigantic you know, a uh, wave of good that you are doing. And without that, none of that happens. So it, it is that nice reflective moment of like, wake up, you, you, you choose to put deodorant on because you don't want to be smelly. So choose to put on your little joy face for a while. You don't have to hide and, and, and sort of like pretend, you know, gross stuff doesn't exist. But that, but choosing to know that you do good and choosing to know that you are making a difference in the world and, and putting on, you know what? Yeah, kind of kick ass today. Um, that's a great habit to start. And I love it. Yeah. Um, I, I try to remind myself every day that life is not a performance. It's a practice. It's a practice. Yeah. Just try and, you know, fail as many times as you can and get back up and keep smiling. And as long as you wake up and you're happy and you're whole and you're complete, um, and, and you love what you're doing, 
that's all that matters. You don't need $10 billion, 10 million. Nope. Yeah. Um, just wake up and be happy. Yep. Continue doing the work. Patrick, any it. predictions on what fundraising is going to look like throughout 2024? Uh, you asked me this on your podcast, mm -hmm. and it was more specific to trends and technology. Yeah. I'm curious, um, on your end, I mean, if you want to go into trends and tech, that's great. I was, you know, but anything else that you'd like to talk about in in terms of, um, just what does fundraising look like in general? Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I think I think it's going to become way more personalized. I think the organizations that get way more personal with their with their communication and way more personal with their um, solicitation and is are going to be the ones who win. And I mean that Netflix knows you better than you know yourself. Amazon knows your donors better than you do. And that's a problem, right? So it's concentrating on the nerdy analytics. So it's, it's being able to follow up with people who open up your emails, but don't click through for an ask. It's concentrating on taking the people who you maybe email out. It's taking the people who actually gave out of that next solicitation because you know that they gave. So you don't want to put them on the solicitation list and you send them a separate email that says, I know you already gave, but I want to keep you up to date on what we're doing. So it's being very cautious with your data. It's being very purposeful with your data. It's paying attention to the little things. It's asking people how they like to be appreciated, individualizing and personalizing gratitude, uh, personalizing conversations. Does someone like text message over phone calls? Do you even know that? So doing your doing a lot of heavy lifting. And again, I acknowledge it's a privilege to have the ability to have heavy lifting like this, but doing extra work to know your donors better, to know your community better on what they need, what they like, what's resonating and paying attention to those little things is going to make you way different and way more approachable and way more likable and, and donatable. That's a word I'm just going to make up right now uh, than anyone else. Because everyone else is going to go scorched earth with I'm just desperate for money sort of bit. And you're going to double down on the idea that you can really hone in on knowing who supports you. I think that's going to be the trend in 2024. Um, even as AI sort of like uh, runs amok and we hear a lot about it, it comes down to do you know your donors? Do you know the people who love you the best? And if you do, you're going to uh, be in a way better position than most people. Let's say that... Um they, you know, an organization listening as many of our listeners, um, you know, hire us to produce their events. They have yeah. 500 people in a ballroom, perhaps 60% of those people are new to their organization. What would you say to the executive director or the director of development that are like, well, that's great. We have 500 new individuals. Now, what am I supposed to do with all that additional data, Patrick? Well, it depends what you want out of that particular data. So that's another question to ask yourself, like, what, what do we want to do with these individuals? And, um, how how well do we want to keep them right so are you using what they gave that night as your uh, benchmark or are you doing research on where they're from what uh, what companies do they work for do they have a family do they have uh, a connection to your organization how are you following up with that is it a survey you know joey's got some amazing and again you pick his brain uh great ideas on how to do in event survey results or questions that get asked. I mean, there's creative ways to engage those new people. It's having a, a, a guest dossier with your board members to introduce themselves to people who've never been to your event 
at the onset of them coming to your event. That's a creative, interesting new way of introducing the organization to personalizing an experience for them. So it's the, the, the data you're looking for is, do they make a good match for your mission, vision, and values? And trying to figure out if that is, uh, that's where I think you have a really good advantage of by being creative on how you get that information. But of the 500 people, maybe 200 are good matches. Well, what are you gonna do with those 200? Well, you wanna make them your best friends. What do they love about your organization? What they, could they love about your organization? And then what are you gonna do about it? What, what messaging or content or video note are you gonna send them after the event of like, hey, Joey, I just, I, we're wrapping up here and I just wanted to say thank you. This is an amazing thing. We couldn't have done it without you. And this is the first time you've ever been to our event. I hope you had a blast. Here's my cell phone number. I'm sending it to you now. Call me if you've got any questions. I look forward to seeing you next year. I'm going to send you a thank you note. Have a great night. That sort of personal message, that personal touch that you can do, that doesn't take a lot of time, energy, effort, or money, but takes a little bit of creativity and a little wherewithal, uh, that's going to be, that. that's what you should do with brand new people. Find the ones who are aligned with you the most. Double down on those. Such a great note to end on. Patrick, anything else on your head or your heart that you want to share? No, but I feel like, uh, well, except for the fact that I just want to thank you again, my friend, for the invitation. Uh, this has been, uh, every time we talk, we have this like amazing, like excessive amount of joy and enthusiasm about what we talk about. And it just pumps me up for the next thing I got to do. And uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate you being in the space uh, and knowing that you exist doing this kind of amazing and creative work. I love it. Love you, man. I, uh, yeah, I hope this pumped you up and got you ready for the next thing that you're about to jump on, which uh, is a call. And you're going to be, uh, like me, enjoying the 65-degree weather uh, pacing around the cul-de-sac, right? I cannot wait, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell our listeners how they can find you online. They can go to dogoodbetterconsulting.com. And all my info is right there. You can find uh, books and podcasts and downloads and videos and resources and all good kind of stuff. And I'm on social media everywhere too. So dogoodbetterconsulting.com. I'll see you there. That's awesome. Patrick, thank you so very much for doing what you do in the world, doing good better. And uh, thank you for making an impact. You're the best, my friend. Thank <laughs> you.